When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And now, chapters 31 and 32, from A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, by Mark Twain. And now, chapter 31, Marco. We strolled along in a sufficiently indolent fashion now, and talked. We must dispose of about the amount of time it ought to take to go to the little hamlet of Ablesur and put justice on the track of those murderers and get back home again. And meantime I had an auxiliary interest which had never paled yet, never lost its novelty for me since I'd been in Arthur's kingdom. The behavior, born of nice and exact subdivisions of caste, of chance passers-by toward each other, toward the shaven monk who trudged along with his cowl tilted back and the sweat washing down his fat jowls. The coal-burner was deeply reverent. To the gentleman, he was abject. With the small farmer and the free mechanic, he was cordial and gossipy. And when a slave passed by with a countenance respectfully lowered, this chap's nose was in the air. He couldn't even see him. Well, there are times when one would like to hang the whole human race and finish the farce. Presently we struck an incident. A small mob of half-naked boys and girls came tearing out of the woods, scared and shrieking. The eldest among them was not more than twelve or fourteen years old. They implored help, but they were so beside themselves that we couldn't make out what the matter was. However, we plunged into the wood, they scurrying in the lead, and the trouble was quickly revealed. They had hanged a little fellow with a bark rope, and he was kicking and struggling in the process of choking to death. We rescued him and fetched him around. It was some more human nature, the admiring little folk imitating their elders. They were playing mob, and had achieved a success which promised to be a good deal more serious than they had bargained for. It was not a dull excursion for me. I managed to put in the time very well. I made various acquaintanceships, and in my quality of stranger was able to ask as many questions as I wanted to. A thing which naturally interested me, as a statesman, was the matter of wages. I picked up what I could under that head during the afternoon. A man who hasn't had much experience, and doesn't think, is apt to measure a nation's prosperity, or lack of prosperity, by the mere size of the prevailing wages. If the wages be high, the nation is prosperous. If low, it isn't. Which is an error. It isn't what sum you get, it's how much you can buy with it. That's the important thing. And it's that that tells whether your wages are high in fact or only high in name. I could remember how it was in the time of our great civil war in the 19th century. In the North, a carpenter got $3 a day, gold valuation. In the South, he got 50 
payable in Confederate shin plasters worth a dollar a bushel. In the North, a suit of overalls cost three dollars, a day's wages. In the South, it cost seventy-five, which was two days' wages. Other things were in proportion. Consequently, wages were twice as high in the North as they were in the South, because the one wage had that much more purchasing power than the other had. Yes, I made various acquaintances to the hamlet, and a thing that gratified me a good deal was to find our new coins in circulation. Lots of mill rays, lots of mills, lots of cents, a good many nickels, and some silver. All this among the artisans and commonalty generally. Yes, and even some gold. But that was at the bank. That is to say, the goldsmiths. I dropped in there while Marco, the son of Marco, was haggling with a shopkeeper over a quarter of a pound of salt and asked for change for a twenty-dollar gold piece. They furnished it, that is, after they had chewed the piece and wrung it on the counter and tried acid on it and asked me where I got it and who I was and where I was from and where I was going to and what I expected to get there and perhaps a couple of hundred more questions. And when they got a ground... I went right on and furnished them a lot of information voluntarily. Told them I owned a dog, and his name was Watch. And my first wife was a free will Baptist, and her grandfather was a prohibitionist. And I used to know a man who had two thumbs on each hand and a ward on the inside of his upper lip, and died in the hope of a glorious resurrection. And so on, and so on, and so on, till even that hungry village questioner began to look satisfied. And also a shade put out, but he had to respect a man of my financial strength, and so he didn't give me any lip, but I noticed he took it out of his underlings, which was a perfectly natural thing to do. Yes, they changed my twenty, but I judged it strained the bank a little, which was a thing to be expected, for it was the same as walking into a paltry village store in the 19th century and requiring the boss of it to change a $2,000 bill to you all of a sudden. He could do it, maybe, but at the same time, he would wonder how a small farmer happened to be carrying so much money around in his pocket, which was probably this goldsmith's thought, too, for he followed me to the door and stood there gazing after me with reverent admiration. Our new money was not only handsomely circulating, but its language was already glibly in use. That is to say, people had dropped the names of the former monies and spoke of things as being worth so many dollars or cents or mills or millrays now. It was very gratifying. We were progressing, that was sure. I got to know several master mechanics, but about the most interesting fellow among them was the blacksmith, Dowley. He was a live man and a brisk talker, and had two journeymen and three apprentices, and was doing a raging business. In fact, he was getting rich, hand over fist, and was vastly respected. Marco was very proud of having such a man for a friend, he had taken me there ostensibly to let me see the big establishment which bought so much of his charcoal, but really to let me see what easy and almost familiar terms he was on with this great man. Dowley and I fraternized at once, and I had had just such picked men, splendid fellows, under me in the Colt Arms factory. I was bound to see more of him, so I invited him to come out to Marco's Sunday and dine with us. Marco was appalled and held his breath, and when the grandee accepted— he was so grateful that he almost forgot to be astonished at the condescension. Marco's joy was exuberant, but only for a moment. Then he grew thoughtful, then sad, and when he heard me tell Dowley I should have Dickon, the boss mason, and Smug, the boss wheelwright, out there too, the coal dust on his face turned to chalk, 
and he lost his grip. But I knew what was the matter with him. It was the expense. He saw ruin before him. He judged that his financial days were numbered. However, on our way to invite the others, I said, "'You must allow me to have these friends come, and you must also allow me to pay the costs.' His face cleared, and he said with spirit, "'But not all of it, not all of it. Ye cannot well bear a burden like to this alone.' I stopped him and said, "'Now let's understand each other on the spot, old friend. I am only a farm bailiff, it is true, but I am not poor.' "'Nevertheless, I have been very fortunate this year. "'You would be astonished to know how I have thriven. "'I tell you the honest truth "'when I say I could squander away "'as many as a dozen feasts like this "'and never cared that for the expense. "'And I snapped my fingers. "'I could see myself rise a foot at a time "'in Marco's estimation. "'And when I fetched out those last words, "'I was become a very tower for style and attitude. "'So you see, you must let me have my way.' "'You can't contribute a cent to this orgy, and that's settled.' "'It's grand and good of you.' "'No, it isn't. "'You've opened your house to Jones and me in the most generous way. "'Jones was remarking upon it today, just before you came back from the village. "'For although he wouldn't be likely to say such a thing to you, "'because Jones isn't a talker, and is diffident in society, "'he has a good heart and a grateful, "'and knows how to appreciate it when he's well-treated. "'Yes,' "'You and your wife have been very hospitable toward us.' "'Ah, brother, tis nothing. "'Such hospitality. "'But it is something. "'The best a man has, freely given, "'is always something, "'and is as good as a prince can do, "'and ranks right along beside it, "'for even a prince can but do his best. "'And so we'll shop around "'and get up this layout now, "'and don't you worry about the expense. "'I'm one of the worst spendthrifts "'that was ever born.' "'Why, do you know, sometimes in a single week I spend, "'but never mind about that. "'You'd never believe it anyway.' "'And so we went gadding along, "'dropping in here and there, pricing things, "'and gossiping with the shopkeepers about the riot, "'and now and then running across pathetic reminders of it "'in the persons of shunned and tearful "'and houseless remnants of families "'whose homes had been taken from them "'and their parents butchered or hanged. "'The raiment of Marco and his wife "'was, of course, toe linen.' and Lindsay Woolsey, respectively, and resembled township maps, it being made up pretty exclusively of patches which had been added township by township in the course of five or six years, until hardly a hand's breadth of the original garments was surviving and present. Now I wanted to fit these people out with new suits, on account of that swell company, and I didn't know just how to get at it, with delicacy, until at last it struck me that as I had already been liberal in inventing worldly gratitude for the king— "'It would be just the thing to back it up with evidence of a substantial sort. "'So I said, "'And Marco, "'there's another thing which you must permit, "'out of kindness for Jones, "'because you wouldn't want to offend him. "'He was very anxious to testify his appreciation in some way, "'but he is so diffident he couldn't venture it himself, "'and so he begged me to buy some little things "'and give them to you and Dame Phyllis "'and let him pay for them "'without your ever knowing they came from him.' "'You know how a delicate person feels about that sort of thing. "'And so I said I would, and we would keep mum. "'Well, his idea was, a new outfit of clothes for you both.' "'Oh, it's wastefulness. "'It may not be, brother. "'It may not be. "'Consider the vastness of the sum.' "'Hang the vastness of the sum. "'Try to keep quiet for a moment, and see how it would seem. "'A body can't get in a word edgeways, you talk so much.' 
"'You ought to cure that, Marco. "'It isn't good form, you know, "'and it will grow on you if you don't check it. "'Yes, we'll step in here now and price this man's stuff, "'and don't forget to remember to not let on to Jones "'that you know he had anything to do with it. "'You can't think how curiously sensitive and proud he is. "'He's a farmer, a pretty fairly well-to-do farmer, "'and I'm his bailiff. "'But the imagination of that man!' "'Why, sometimes when he forgets himself and gets to blowing off, "'you'd think he was one of the swells of the earth, "'and you might listen to him a hundred years "'and never take him for a farmer, "'especially if he talked agriculture. "'He thinks he's a sheol of a farmer, "'thinks he's an old grayback from way back. "'But between you and me privately, "'he don't know as much about farming "'as he does about running a kingdom. "'Still, whatever he talks about you, "'you want to drop your underjaw and listen.' "'the same as if you never heard such incredible wisdom in all your life before, "'and were afraid you might die before you get enough of it. "'That will please Jones.' "'It tickled Marco to the marrow to hear about such an odd character, "'but it also prepared him for accidents. "'And in my experience, when you travel with a king "'who is letting on to be something else "'and can't remember it more than about half the time, "'you can't take too many precautions. "'This was the best store we'd come across yet.' It had everything in it, in small quantities, from anvils and dry goods all the way down to fish and pinchbeck jewelry. I concluded I would bunch my whole invoice right here and not go pricing around any more. So I got rid of Marco by sending him off to invite the mason and the wheelwright, which left the field free to me. For I never care to do a thing in a quiet way. It's got to be theatrical, or I don't take any interest in it. I showed up money enough in a careless way "'to corral the shopkeeper's respect, "'and then I wrote down a list of the things I wanted "'and handed it to him to see if he could read it. "'He could, and was proud to show that he could. "'He said he'd been educated by a priest "'and could both read and write. "'He ran it through and remarked with satisfaction "'that it was a pretty heavy bill. "'Well, and so it was, for a little concern like that. "'I was not only providing a swell dinner, "'but some odds and ends of extras.' I ordered that the things be carted out and delivered at the dwelling of Marco, the son of Marco, by Saturday evening, and send me the bill at dinner-time Sunday. He said I could depend upon his promptness and exactitude. It was the rule of the house. He also observed that he would throw in a couple of Miller guns for the Marcos gratis. That everybody was using them now. He had a mighty opinion of that clever device. I said, "'And please fill them up to the middle mark, too.' "'and add that to the bill. "'He would, with pleasure. "'He filled them, and I took them with me. "'I couldn't venture to tell him "'that the Miller gun was a little invention of my own, "'and that I had officially ordered "'that every shopkeeper in the kingdom "'keep them on hand and sell them at government price, "'which was the merest trifle. "'And the shopkeeper got that, not the government. "'We furnished them for nothing. "'The king had hardly missed us "'when we got back at nightfall.' He had early dropped again into his dream of a grand invasion of Gaul with the whole strength of his kingdom at his back, and the afternoon had slipped away without his ever coming to himself again. We'll return with Chapter 32, right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 32 of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Dowley's Humiliation "'Well, when that cargo arrived towards sunset, Saturday afternoon, "'I had my hands full to keep the Marcos from fainting. "'They were sure Jones and I were ruined past help, 
and they blamed themselves as accessories to this bankruptcy. You see, in addition to the dinner materials, which called for a sufficiently round sum, I bought a lot of extras for the future comfort of the family. For instance, a big lot of wheat, a delicacy as rare to the tables of their class as was ice cream to a hermit's. Also a sizable deal dinner table. Also two entire pounds of salt, which was another piece of extravagance in those people's eyes. Also crockery, stools, the clothes, a small cask of beer, and so on. I instructed the Marcos to keep quiet about this sumptuousness, so as to give me a chance to surprise the guests and show off a little. Concerning the new clothes, the simple couple were like children. They were up and down all night to see if it wasn't nearly daylight, so that they could put them on, and they were into them at last as much as an hour before dawn was due. Then their pleasure, not to say delirium, was so fresh and novel and inspiring that the sight of it paid me well for the interruptions which my sleep had suffered. The king had slept just as usual, like the dead. The Marcos could not thank him for their clothes, that being forbidden, but they tried every way they could think of to make him see how grateful they were. Which all went for nothing. He didn't notice any change. It turned out to be one of those rich and rare fall days which is just a June day toned down to a degree where it is heaven to be out of doors. Toward noon the guests arrived, and we assembled under a great tree and were soon as sociable as old acquaintances. Even the king's reserve melted a little, though it was some little trouble to him to adjust himself to the name of Jones along at first. I had asked him to try not to forget that he was a farmer, but I also considered it prudent to ask him to let the thing stand at that, and not elaborate it any, because he was just the kind of person you could depend on to spoil a little thing like that if you didn't warn him, his tongue was so handy, and his spirit so willing, and his information so uncertain. Dowley was in fine feather, and I early got him started, and then adroitly worked him around onto his own history for a text and himself for a hero, and then it was good to sit there and hear him hum. Self-made man, you know. They know how to talk. They do deserve more credit than any other breed of men. Yes, that is true, and they are among the very first to find it out, too. He told how he had begun life an orphan lad without money and without friends able to help him, how he had lived as the slaves of the meanest master lived, how his day's work was from sixteen to eighteen hours long and yielded him only enough black bread to keep him in a half-fed condition, how his faithful endeavors finally attracted the attention of a good blacksmith who came near knocking him dead with kindness by suddenly offering when he was totally unprepared to take him as his bound apprentice for nine years and give him board and clothes and teach him the trade, or mystery, as Dowley called it. That was his first great rise, his first gorgeous stroke of fortune, and you saw that he couldn't yet speak of it without a sort of eloquent wonder and delight that such a gilded promotion should have fallen to the lot of a common human being. He got no new clothing during his apprenticeship, but on his graduation day, his master tricked him out in spang new toe linens and made him feel unspeakably rich and fine. I remember me of that day, the wheelwright sang out with enthusiasm. And I likewise, cried the mason. I would not believe they were thine own. In faith, I could not. Nor other, shouted Dowley with sparkling eyes. I was like to lose my character. The neighbor's wending I had mayhap been stealing. It was a great day, a great day, 
"'One forgetteth not days like that.' "'Yes, and his master was a fine man, and prosperous, "'and always had a great feast of meat twice in the year, "'and with it white bread, true wheaten bread, "'in fact, lived like a lord, so to speak. "'And in time Dowley succeeded to the business "'and married the daughter.' "'And now, consider what has come to pass,' said he, impressively. Two times in every month there is fresh meat upon my table.' He made a pause here, to let that fact sink home, and then added, "'And eight times salt meat.' "'It is even true,' said the wheelwright, with bated breath. "'I know it of my own knowledge,' said the mason, in the same reverent fashion. "'On my table appeareth white bread every Sunday in the year.' "'added the master smith with solemnity. "'I leave it to your own consciences, friends. "'If this is not also true—' "'By my head, yes,' cried the mason. "'I can testify it, and I do,' said the wheelwright. "'And as to furniture, ye shall say yourselves what mine equipment is.' "'He waved his hand in fine gesture of granting frank and unhampered freedom of speech, "'and added, "'Speak as ye are moved. Speak as ye would speak.' "'as if I were not here. "'Ye have five stools, "'and of the sweetest workmanship at that, "'albeit your family is but three, "'said the wheelwright, with deep respect. "'And six wooden goblets, "'and six platters of wood, "'and two of pewter to cat and drink from withal, "'said the mason, impressively. "'And I say it as knowing God is my judge, "'and we tarry not here alway, "'but must answer at the last day "'for the thing said in the body.' "'be they false, or be they sooth. "'Now ye know what manner of man I am, "'Brother Jones,' said the smith, "'with a fine and friendly condescension, "'and doubtless ye would look to find me "'a man jealous of his due of respect, "'but sparing of outgo to strangers "'till their radiant and quality be assured. "'But trouble yourself not, as concerning that. "'Wit ye well ye shall find me a man "'that regardeth not these matters, "'but is willing to receive any he as his fellow and equal "'that carrieth a right heart in his body.' "'be as worldly a state, however modest. "'And in token of it, here is my hand, "'and I say with my own mouth, "'We are equals, equals.' "'And he smiled around on the company "'with the satisfaction of a god "'who is doing the handsome and gracious thing, "'and is quite well aware of it. "'The king took the hand with a poorly disguised reluctance "'and let go of it as willingly as a lady lets go of a fish, "'all of which had a good effect.' "'for it was mistaken for an embarrassment "'natural to what was being called upon by greatness. "'The dame brought out the table now "'and set it under the tree. "'It caused a visible stir of surprise, "'it being brand new and a sumptuous article of deal. "'But the surprise rose higher still "'when the dame, with a body oozing easy indifference "'at every pore, but eyes that gave it all away "'by absolutely flaming with vanity.' "'slowly unfolded an actual Simon pure tablecloth and spread it. "'That was a notch above even the blacksmith's domestic grandeurs, "'and it hit him hard, you could see it. "'But Marco was in paradise, you could see that too. "'Then the dame brought two fine new stools. "'Phew! That was a sensation. "'It was visible in the eyes of every guest. "'Then she brought two more, as calmly as she could. "'Sensation again!' "'with awed murmurs. "'Again she brought two. "'Walking on air, she was so proud. "'The guests were petrified, "'and the mason muttered, "'There is that about earthly pomps "'which doth ever move to reverence.' 
As the dame turned away, Marco couldn't help slapping on the climax while the thing was hot. So he said, with what was meant for a languid composure, but was a poor imitation of it, These suffice. Leave the rest. So there were more yet. It was a fine effect. I couldn't have played the hand better myself. From this out, the madam piled up the surprises with a rush that fired the general astonishment up to a hundred and fifty in the shade, and at the same time paralyzed expression of it down to gasped oohs and ahs, and mute upliftings of hands and eyes. She fetched crockery, new and plenty of it, new wooden goblets and other table furniture, and beer, fish, chicken, a goose, eggs, roast beef, roast mutton, a ham, a small roast pig, and a wealth of genuine white wheaten bread. Take it by and large, that spread laid everything far and away in the shade that ever that crowd had seen before. And while they sat there just simply stupefied with wonder and awe, I sort of waved my hand as if by accident, and the storekeeper's son emerged from space and said he had come to collect. That's all right, I said indifferently. What is the amount? Give us the items. Then he read off this bill, while those three amazed men listened, and serene waves of satisfaction rolled over my soul, and alternate waves of terror and admiration surged over Marco's. Two pounds, salt. Two hundred, eight dozen pints beer in the wood. Eight hundred, three bushels wheat. Twenty-seven hundred, two pounds fish. One hundred, three hens. Four hundred, one goose. Four hundred, three dozen eggs. Hundred and fifty, one roast beef. Four hundred and fifty, one roast of mutton. Four hundred, one ham. Eight hundred, one sucking pig. Five hundred, two crockery dinner sets. Six thousand, two men's suits and underwear. Twenty-eight hundred, one stuff and one linsey woolsey gown and underwear. Sixteen hundred, eight wooden goblets. Eight hundred, various table furniture. Ten thousand, one deal table. Three thousand, eight stools. Four thousand, two miller guns, loaded. Three thousand... He ceased. There was a pale and awful silence. Not a limb stirred. Not a nostril betrayed the passage of breath. Is that all? I asked, in a voice of the most perfect calmness. All, fair sir, save that certain matters of light moment are placed together under a head-height sundries. If it would like you, I will separate... Now that's of no consequence, I said, accompanying the words with a gesture of the most utter indifference. Give me the grand total, please. The clerk leaned against the tree to stay himself and said, Thirty-nine thousand one hundred and fifty milrays. The wheelwright fell off his stool. The others grabbed the table to save themselves, and there was a deep and general ejaculation of, God be with us the day of disaster. The clerk hastened to say, "'My father chargeth me to say "'he cannot honorably require you "'to pay it all at this time, "'and therefore only prayeth you.' "'I paid no more heed "'than if it were the idle breeze, "'but, with an air of indifference "'amounting almost to weariness, "'got out my money "'and tossed four dollars on the table. "'Ah, oh, you should have seen them stare! "'The clerk was astonished and charmed. "'He asked me to retain "'one of the dollars of security "'until he could go to town and... I interrupted. What? And fetch back nine cents? Nonsense. Take the whole. Keep the change. There was an amazed murmur to this effect. Verily, this bean is made of money. He throweth it away, 
even as if it were dirt. The blacksmith was a crushed man. The clerk took his money and reeled away drunk with fortune. I said to Marco and his wife, "'Good folk, here is a little trifle for you. Handy the miller guns as if it were a matter of no consequence, though each of them contained fifteen cents in solid cash. And while the poor creatures went to pieces with astonishment and gratitude, I turned to the others and said as calmly as one would ask the time of day, "'Well, if we're all ready, I judge the dinner is. Come, let's fall to.' "'Ah, well, it was immense. Yes, it was a daisy. I don't know that I ever put a situation together better, or got happier spectacular effects out of the materials available. The blacksmith, well, he was simply mashed. Land! I wouldn't have felt what that man was feeling, for anything in the world. Here he'd been blowing and bragging about his grand meat feast twice a year, and his fresh meat twice a month, and his salt meat twice a week, and his white bread every Sunday the year round.' all for a family of three. The entire cost for the year, not above 69.2.6, at 69 cents, two mills and six mill rays. And all of a sudden, here comes along a man who slashes out nearly four dollars on a single blowout. And not only that, but acts as if it made him tired to handle such small sums. Yes, Dowley was a good deal wilted, and shrunk up and collapsed. He had the aspect of a bladder balloon that's been stepped on by a cow. Thanks for joining us for Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, chapters 31 and 32. Join us next week Sunday night for chapters 33 and 34. If you, and if you have a moment, please do send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We always appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners find us. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. We'll be back next Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe. And we'll be back soon.